Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be together today. If you're a guest here, my name's Mark, and one of the pastors here. It's been a big week in the life of our city and the community surrounding Madison, and I'm thinking about all that surrounded the situation of Tony Robinson's death and the decision by our district attorney to not press charges. And um, you noticed, if you are on the mailing, that I sent out a, a note from Mark giving some prayer points, and I was reminded in some of the exchanges in conversation and email that there's just a lot, a lot of tension around the situation in our city. And um, if we had uh, an opportunity to just talk about it, you would feel it right here in this room. And there's a sense where um, it's very easy to want to choose sides. And I I find myself... um, a little out of my depth and element. And I have um, friends here in law enforcement in this church. And I have friends in this community and in this church um, that are raising their children of color. And um, there's a lot of fear on both sides. And what's clear in my mind this morning is um, God is not about choosing sides. He is very clear that he is for everyone in this city. He's for everyone. And he's asking us to join him in being a people, as we talked all through All In, who seek the peace, the shalom, the well-being, and the prosperity of the city to pray for it, understanding that as the citizens of a city prosper, so do God's people. And so I'd like to just lead us in a prayer together. Would you join with me in that prayer? Our Father in heaven, your name alone is holy, set apart. There is no other God. You alone are just and loving and good and merciful. Your throne established in righteousness and justice. You are full of grace. Your son has revealed that you are also all truth. You are the all-wise God. Lord Jesus, you are our Prince of Peace, our wonderful counselor, our mighty God, and we love you. We pray that your kingdom would come, your reign, Christ, in our hearts, in our homes, in our apartments, that it would come in this church, that it would come in this city, Lord that we would be a people who would do your will here in Madison, even as it is being done today in heaven. And so give us the provision, our daily bread, to do just that. Forgive us our debts. We confess our sin. Lord, we acknowledge that we have not loved you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We have not loved our neighbor as ourselves. And so we ask for your mercy and grace and we claim the promise that is ours through your son that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and you are just in forgiving us and cleansing us from all unrighteousness. And so, Lord, hear us as we lift up our prayers and pray for those who mourn this day. We pray for those who are angry, confused, afraid, We pray for those who lead our city for wisdom. We pray for those in law enforcement, that you would keep them safe, 
that you'd make them wise as they pursue justice for all. We pray for your church to be united, not divided by fear, not to distrust, but move together in your name, Lord Jesus, for your cause. And so we pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts that are eager and hearts that are wise to know what it means to seek the peace, the shalom, the well-being, so that everyone in our city and the surrounding communities could flourish in all the ways that you would want us to flourish. We pray for those wrestling in our city with the things that preceded Tony's shooting death, the things that continue today, the things that are hard for their lives each and every day. We pray for encouragement. We pray that we would be sensitive to their situation and their longings. And Lord, we would just pray that you would unite our hearts around you and your purposes. You've called us to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with you. May we do that until you come or call us home. For yours is the glory, the kingdom, the glory, and the power forever and ever. Amen. So there once was a salesman who uh, had the territory out west. He sold heavy equipment. He was really good, number one salesman in the whole nation. And because he was so successful, you can imagine he commanded not only a high salary, but this guy had all kinds of money coming in through commissions and bonuses. And it's safe to say he was living large, living large. Word got back, though, that his um, business account was just kind of wildly out of control. That was one thing they could raise an eyebrow, but the next was, was a deal breaker completely. They found out that he was skimming off the sales, not reporting exactly what the true sale was. And so, to his surprise, he got a call from the CEO who confronted him and told him it was over, he was done, he was fired. He wasn't expecting that. I mean, he was the number one guy. He was the golden boy. He was climbing high. He, he had it all. And then in a moment, unexpectedly, boom, nothing. He, he knew there wasn't a competitor right there that he could call and say, hey, you know, could I uh, maybe get a job with you guys? I'm thinking of moving over. So he had to come up with a plan quickly. So here's what he did within an hour. He called the four leading customers and concocted this plan that the company had this, uh, this uh, group of equipment that, that was just needing to get moved. And so they were slashing prices, very expensive equipment, and this deal's not going to last long. But if you grab it, you know, you could really, really get this dirt cheap. And so with, within a few hours, he sold 10 pieces of heavy equipment. We're talking about lots and lots of money. And he ended each of the four phone calls with this line, hey, by the way, I'm thinking of making a move. If you know of anyone or if you could use me in your company, well, just, you know, think about me. Before he hung up with that third customer, he got an offer. 
Well, we'd love to have you. When can you start? Well, tomorrow sounds good. I said, great, come on in tomorrow. L.A. company, he was all excited. So, um, you can imagine the surprise when a couple hours after he'd been fired, that headquarters has the information that there's just been like 10 huge sales by a guy who they just fired. And they're scratching their heads and say, what do we do with this? And I mean, these are like the four biggest accounts in the company. So it was really clear. Number one, um, we, we, we don't want to offend these accounts because th these have been really profitable. Number two, if we take off the guy's commission, which obviously we're not going to pay him, and look at the rest, we're still making a boatload of money. So let's just not even go there and keep it under wraps. So the next day, as the recently fired, now hired salesman is driving to work, his phone buzzes, and it's a text from the CEO. One word with an exclamation. What do you think it was? It's pretty simple. It's just clever. Clever. Exclamation point. Now, if I said to you, one of the things we can learn from the salesman is, as God's people, we need to be more clever as we think about reaching people for Christ. We need to be more like that guy. What would your first response be to that? Like, what was in your orange juice this morning? Well, the interesting thing is, it's the very same message that Jesus gave to his disciples after he told his version of this story 2,000 years ago. Grab your Bible, Luke chapter 16, and let's catch up with Jesus' parable. Luke chapter 16, if you're new to the Bible, grab that table of contents and you'll be well on your way. We're in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and after Luke is John chapter 16. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions. That word wasting, same word of the younger brother in 1513 who squandered the estate in wild living, remember? He's wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what should I do now? My master's taken away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me in their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down quickly, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, how much do you owe? 1,000 bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, take your bill and make it 800. The master commended the dishonest manager because he acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. That's a reference to God's people in the Old Testament, the people of the light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. So, what we're going to see here in two stories is Christ followers, Christ followers, wisely invest and generously share 
the resources they've been given to make an eternal difference, showing they love God more than money. Or in, in just short, God's people leverage our wealth. We don't love our wealth. All right? So let's go back to the story. What's Jesus not saying? He's not saying, hey, guys, I'm kind of low on cash right now. And um, I'm just thinking I'm going to give you a little more leeway here. And so whatever you have to do to get more cash, as long as you're using it for the kingdom, it's all good. If you need to embezzle, lie, steal, cheat, as long as the end is for kingdom stuff, you know what? The end will justify the means. No, that's not what he's saying. That's not what he's saying. He is saying that what is commendable in this man is not his deceptiveness. It's not his dishonesty. It's his shrewdness. That word is the same word that we could translate prudent or wise or clever. Jesus is saying people of this world, like this manager, are far more shrewd than we are in using worldly possessions. Our money, our possessions, our property for their own good. We should be using that just as shrewdly for the good of others to make an eternal difference, a kingdom difference in people's lives. So the focus is on the shrewdness of this man to make friends who would welcome him in the future. And Jesus says, that's how we should do it, to gain friends for ourselves so that when it's gone, we'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings into the place of heaven and all the places in heaven. So Jesus lays out some principles that we don't want to miss here that is going to be really important if we're going to be people who leverage the stuff God's given us instead of just hang on and love that stuff. He says the principle number one is think of yourself as a manager, not an owner. A manager, not an owner. These are the things that God has given us. So here's the crazy thing is our name is on so much of our stuff. If you own a car, there's a title. There's a name on the title. If you own a house, I know the bank's name is on there, but your name's probably going to be on there unless you've, you know, been a financial piece and, man, you've really done the debt thing and you own the house. It's just your name. When we were kids and we had a basketball or we had something that was ours, we would get out the, the Sharpie and we put our name on it. And so when we think of stuff, we think that's mine. And God's saying, I want you to remember that your stuff, and even Deuteronomy 8.18 says, your ability to earn the money to buy the stuff, it's all from me. Psalm 24, what does it say? The earth is the Lord's and most of it in it. Is that how it goes? The earth is the Lord's and most of it, no, everything in it. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all who live in it, everything, you and me, belongs to God. We're managers, not owners. Really, really, really important starting point. How we think about our stuff. Who does it belong to? Is this on loan? Has this been entrusted to us to steward, to invest for the master's purposes? There's a second principle. Wise managers invest in people to make an eternal difference. 
Now, if you're investing money right now, you are hoping you're getting good, good advice, good counsel from whoever it is you are seeking advice from so that your investment grows. But at the end of the day, the best we can do with that investment is, is pass it on to someone down here. Jesus is saying, actually, there's investments you can make here that don't stop here. And that's the stuff that you want to keep your eye on. I'm asking you to use the stuff I've entrusted to you to make an eternal difference as you join me in my mission of changing people into devoted followers of Christ. Go and make disciples of all nations. Wise investors invest in people. He, he says to gain friends, not to gain a fortune. Not a friend, but friends, living for others, giving our lives to others. And so in verse 10 and following, he gives some tips, some investment tips. A key one and a couple of warnings that fall out of that tip. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you've not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches, the stuff that lasts forever? And if you've not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No one can serve two masters. He's not saying no one can have two bosses. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. So here's the investment tip. It's, it, it seems a lot like the investment tip we heard or are going to hear when we're in our 20s, this magic about compounding interest. You've heard it, right? Two people start investing money. One guy starts, one gal starts at 20. And for 10 years in a row, she puts in $2,000 and she gets X amount of right percentage return. I never got that kind of return. But anyways, that's the gig, right? <laughs> And uh, the other one starts and doesn't give anything after 30. And then the other, the other starts at 30 and gives $2,000 the rest of their life. At what point, the trick question could be, does the 30-year-old catch up to the 20-year-old who stops giving? And the answer is, they never do. They never do. And so the principle here is, it's right here in verse 10. Start by faithfully investing the little that you've been given and trusted Today, start today with the, with the little that you have. Start today. So the warning is that you put it off. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm in with you, God. I get that it's yours. I don't have that much. In fact, I'm a little short right now. And so you understand I don't have anything to invest in your kingdom right now. But when I do, I'm on, I'm on with the program. Don't do that. Don't wait. Because the truth is, he says, the principle is, if you wait, if you're not faithful with the little, why do you think you're going to be faithful with more? Why do you think you're going to have margin with the more now to give? You're not. If you're not doing with the little, you're not going to do with the more. Don't wait. There is a second warning. Don't love money more than God. Because if you do, you'll never get in the game now, later, ever. Don't love money more than God. So that's a repeated, repeated warning in Scripture. It's not money that is evil. It's the love of money that causes all sorts of evil. 
Don't love money. Don't trust in money. Why does Jesus talk about money so much? Because it is the easy go-to God, idol, in our day to find security, to find our identity, to find happiness. It's so convenient. We're bombarded with everything, and advertisement says when we get more stuff, we're going to have this. And so we're tempted to, to buy it, to grab it, to long for it. And by the way, we know this, don't we? I hope we do. You don't need to have money to love money. You don't need to have it to love it. And since Jeremiah the prophet tells us from God himself that the heart is deceitful above all things and who can know it, it's a really good thing for us to just pause and say right now, so how do I know I love God more than my stuff? How do I know? I mean, because I know the right answer. Yeah, Mark, what do you love more? Well, hello. I know the answer is God. I love God more. Well, it's more than giving the right answer. Are we living the right answer? How do we know? So I've been thinking about this. So here's some things to think through. First, when we think about our stuff, our money, our possessions, property, whatever, when we think about our stuff, what kinds of thoughts do we have about our stuff? Do we have thoughts like, and I need to protect that? Do we have thoughts like, I, I, I need to get more stuff? Do we have thoughts like, I, I, I actually could be using this stuff to help somebody else out? How do I think about the stuff God has given me? Do I think about acquiring more or sharing it more often? Here's one. Have I ever asked God in prayer to help me to be my financial advisor on how to steward the stuff that he's given me? Has that, has that ever been a prayer? Or is my prayer, I'm a little short, like, could you help me? we got some bills, we got some debt. Could you help me? Could you help me? Could you help me? Always on the receivable, but not on the sharing. Am I, here's another one. Am, am, I, I'm in, am I in the game? Am I in God's market of investing to make an eternal difference, sharing what God has given me so generously? Am I acting as a wise investor? Am I in the game with the church that's trying to do good in people's lives? There's like 2,000, I couldn't believe this, there's, in our computer database right now, it doesn't mean they're all here this week, but there's like 2,000 kids under 18, Door Creek. Am I making a difference in their life? Am I making a difference through the, the ministry of this church in the city as we reach out to, to kids, as we reach out through our resale store, as we reach out internationally? Am I in the game? Am I in the game when I think about my apartment and how I could use it? to make friends who would welcome me into eternal dwellings? Do I, do I think about my budget? So what if, what if we just 20 bucks a week freed up $1,000 and, and you had this opportunity to think shrewdly about how could I use that $1,000? By the way, that's like your cable bill for most of us. Or maybe it's your coffee habit for some of us. I don't know, 20 bucks. A little less than three bucks a day. 
Well, what could we do with that? What could we do if a thousand of us said, yeah, let's, let's do that. Another million dollars to invest in the kingdom. What does that look like? Am I in the game today? Here's one. What makes me feel secure when I think about the future? What makes me, and the key word here is feel secure. Is it how much I have set aside for retirement? Is it my plan to set aside for the retirement? Is it how much I have in my emergency fund? Is it God? What makes me feel secure? Now listen, the Bible talks about planning for the future. There's nothing wrong with that. My, the question though is, what brings me security? Here's another one. What's my response when my possessions are damaged by someone else or taken or stolen? What's my response? I had a friend, his name was Mike. He's a pretty intense guy. Played football. He was, he's great. Loved Jesus. But he, he knew his heart. And his heart was, you know, he could get pretty intense about stuff like this. So he bought a new car. He drove it home. He asked his wife to come out over to the car door and uh, over to the car. They're looking at the car. He, uh, she hadn't seen this, but he pulled out a hammer from, from the garage tool chest and he whacked the car and put a dent in it. He said, okay, I just, you know, I put the first dent in it. So we're just, we're just not going to go there. We're not going to get into there. I'm going, dude, that's like really intense. <laughs> but he just, he knew his heart, I think. He knew his heart. How do I respond when the subject of money comes up? Like at church, like right now. Oh, and by the way, if you're a guest here, we're not doing a series on guilt, I mean on money. <laughs> um, we're just w working our way through Luke's gospel. We're in chapter 16, so here we are. What's my reaction? Look at the reaction in verse 14. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering. Oh, you missed it. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering. They hated what Jesus was saying. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. You're justifying yourself with all your religious show, taking care of all the external little pieces and crossing the T's and dotting the I's of this religious show. And you got all the praise of the people who can't believe how godly and pious you are, but you just need to know what people value is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. That's what they were hanging their justification on, that they perfectly keep the Old Testament law, Moses' first five books, and the rest of it, the prophets. They were proclaimed until John, John the Baptist, who announces Jesus. Since that time, since John, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached. That's what Jesus came to do. Talking about God's rule in people's hearts, submitting to Jesus as king, God's promised king. And everyone is forcing their way into this kingdom, into it. It's easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. Just so you know, this kingdom of God is radically connected to the Old Testament law, and I've come not to do away with it, abolish it, Matthew 5, 17. I've come to fulfill it. It still holds. It's still in play. It's easier, verse 17, for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. 
Anyone who divorces a wife and marries another commits adultery. And the man who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And I was away studying the parables with 32 pastors this week, Dr. Craig Blomberg. And he was going through this passage. And I cringed when he said, verses 14 through 18 is the most difficult section in all of Luke. I'm going, oh, man, that's my text this week. And I just want to affirm, verses 14 through 18 are very, very hard. And so some of you, look at, look at the heading in your Bible. It says something like additional teaching. But here's the deal. The first story about the shrewd manager is all about our response to possessions, to make an eternal investment. The next story we're going to see about the rich man and Lazarus is the importance of not just wisely investing, but generously sharing the possessions God has given us. Both stories are all about wealth, our attitude toward it, and, and this is right in the middle of it. This is a bridge. It's got to connect. It's just not. And then he said some other things, including something. I don't know why he said something about divorce. So let's try and piece it together quickly. Jesus is saying in a third warning here, not just to not wait, not just to not love money more than God. He's saying, don't justify your love of money. Don't justify it. Don't cover it up with this religious show. That's what they were doing. Be careful what you measure your life against. It's not the praises of people. It's God. We're justified by God, not what others think, not by our religious acts, but by our faith, placing our trust in God. They're not placing their trust in God because you can't when you love money. And we know, verse 14, they love money. So the law that you claim justifies you actually condemns you. My coming, Jesus says, fulfills the law. It doesn't get rid of it. In fact, it's going to be as permanent as creation. And so I, I think what Jesus is doing here when he brings up this whole matter of divorce, which isn't a, a broad excursus on the teaching of divorce, it teaches us some things about divorce, and basically is God's view of marriage is a covenant marriage, one man, one woman for life. That's the deal. And he says, you can get a divorce, but... You, you, you get together with someone else after you've gotten a divorce that God doesn't recognize. God still sees you as married, and therefore, this new relationship is considered adultery. Now, in Matthew 19, Jesus says, well, there's an exception. He says the exception would be sexual immorality, a broad term for unfaithfulness in the area of sexual purity within the marriage relationship. You are given permission. You're not required, but you have permission to pursue the divorce. Mark 10 says the whole reason permission has been granted, divorce has been granted in the law is because of the hardness of hearts. This is not God's desire. This is a result of our own hard-heartedness and the fall and living in a twisted, fallen world. Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says there's another exception, and that is if you're abandoned by an unbelieving spouse, you are free from that marriage relationship. And he's saying, look, you guys, you're justifying yourself on the basis of the law. I just want to hold you up to your own standard. And your teaching and your understanding of the law is actually breaking the law. So the school of thought was really, really permissive regarding divorce in Jesus' day. You had a school of Hillel that said, basically, if your wife burnt the toast this morning, you've got grounds. 
I'm not kidding you. If your wife ruined the meal, you have grounds to divorce her. Another camp said, well, actually, it's not even that hard. If you found a prettier woman, well, you can just, if, that's all you need is a prettier woman. You find a prettier looking woman, then you're free to divorce. By the way, this was only something men could pursue. Women could not pursue divorce. Jesus is saying, your teaching about marriage and divorce is actually breaking the seventh commandment, adultery. So he's just, he's just tearing down their facade, their facade. And before we disconnect ourselves with the Pharisees, friends, you've heard me say it. You've heard Jesus say it. They're hypocrites. And so it's really easy for us to go, Pharisees, bad guys. Pharisees, black hats. Pharisees, thugs. Pharisees, scoundrels. Pharisees, you guys, they were good guys. If your kid was marrying a Pharisee's kid, you're going, man, honey, this is awesome. Look at this great family. The closest thing to a Pharisee in our day is an evangelical pastor. That's a quote from, pra from Craig Blomberg this week. <laughs> Ouch. So, so you, the, the danger is we go, oh, yeah, those guys. Haddon Robinson has a great title. Bad guys, good guys, us guys. It's us guys. This is a danger. We need to heed the warning. So he goes into the third story. There's a rich man who was dressed in purple. We're down in verse 19. And fine linen. By the way, purple is owned by royalty. And he lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores, and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abram's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abram replied, Son, Remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. For I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they will not come to this place in torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. So what's this story about? This is the story that shows us what happens when we love our stuff more than God? Trust in our stuff more than God. We, we miss the opportunity to generously share and make an eternal difference in someone's life. That's what this story is about. It's not saying that here's the cool thing. You know, some people, you know, under God's providence get good things in life and some people get hard things in life. And man, if you got like the poverty card and you're poor, 
The cool thing is you just show that card at heaven and that's your ticket. You just need to be poor. Well, Luke, Luke's version of Jesus' teaching on the Sermon on the Mount said, blessed are the poor, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Is that what Jesus is saying? It's just being poor that gets you in heaven. No, it's saying the kingdom is open to the poor. And the poor are positioned well to receive it. Because when you don't have much, you are more mindful of your need. But we know that we're not saved through an economic status. Why do we know that? Chapter 15. There is more joy in heaven over one poor sinner. Oh, no, that's not how it goes. One sinner who repents, who responds to the gracious, open, wide arms of the Father in his compassion and mercy. So it's not saying we are saved by the fact that we're poor. But it is showing the dangers and what happens when we love our stuff more than God. So what's wrong with the picture? First, his living and extravagant luxury, self-indulgent lifestyle that actually precluded him from seeing and addressing the need that was daily before him he was at his gate. Hello. He was brought there every day. So whenever he was going in and out of his estate, he saw Lazarus begging, and he didn't even get the crumbs. He never made it to the table. He couldn't move. That's why they placed him at the gate. He never got the crumbs even. That's what's wrong. And it's not so much what he did. There's no record of Hey, man, and you said mean things to him. Hey, you kicked him off the corner. Hey, no, it's not what he did. It's what he didn't do. That's really important for us, what he didn't do. And so the scriptures remind us that the heart of God's heart is a predisposition that is moving towards the marginalized with compassion, a predisposition written in the very law of God. Listen to it. In Leviticus, two examples. Do not go over your vineyard a second time or pick up the grapes that have fallen. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. When you reap the harvest of your land, do not reap to the very edges of your field or gather the gleanings of your harvest. Leave them for the poor and for the foreigner residing among you. I am the Lord your God. Here's what you're to do. Not just you're not supposed to steal from the poor. You're supposed to leave margin. And even the way you take in your crops, you are supposed to harvest your crops totally mindful that you have a responsible for your brother. You are your brother's keeper. And you are to harvest in such a way that you can share out of the generosity that God has given you. There's more. Deuteronomy 15 and 24. If anyone is poor among you, your fellow Israelites in any of the towns of the land the Lord your God has given you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward them. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend them whatever they need. I'm not, I, you know, I, I, it's this. It's not enough to say, well, I, I didn't, no, did I, did I give? Am, am I engaged in freely 
lending towards their needs. Then he says about paying the poor. Pay them their wages each day before sunset because they are poor and are counting on it. In other words, they don't have enough for tomorrow. So if you don't pay them today, they're in a hard spot. Otherwise, they may cry to the Lord against you and you will be guilty of sin. It was written into the sacrificial system. It was written into how they went through the Sabbath years, the seven years. It had to do with the offerings that were collected. It was all in the law, not just what you don't do to the poor and impress them, what you do. Now, the rich man wasn't engaged. He didn't see him. And so there's a third principle here, and that is how we treat our possessions today reveals not only our hearts, but it gives us an indication it's an important word, an indication of our eternal location. How I think and handle the wealth that God has entrusted to me, my money, my possessions, my property, reveals my heart and gives indication of future location. And this is, this is hard because Jesus starts referring to a place of torment. And um, if you love Jesus, you go, I don't like this part of Jesus. But the parts that you love about Jesus, you know those parts about Jesus because you heard it here. And in God's word, Jesus reminds us that there is a place of eternal separation, of suffering. There is a place where it's not an intermediate state where you can kind of work yourself to a better place, purgatory. The chasm is fixed. It's a place where God says, if you want to do life without me here on this earth, I'll let you do it without me forever. This is a hard teaching. But as you hear this teaching and you're considering the claims of Christ, I want you to understand who he's saying it to, to people who are sure they punched their ticket to the right place. In fact, Jesus' teaching about hell most often comes up in the context of those who supposedly love God and love his purposes. So this is a warning, a good word. It's a hard word meant to change our hearts. It's a warning about the deceptiveness of riches. This man had a wealth addiction, the rich man, a wealth addiction. And we live in a society that is addicted to wealth and the stuff it buys. Take Sam Polk. Started trading on Wall Street. He made $5 million in bonuses alone by the time he was 30. He was living the dream. He says of that time, quote, I had a tremendous feeling of importance and power as a 25-year-old. But at 30, he walks away from it all. He writes about it in his op-ed in the New York Times. He worked at Bank of America, City Court, and he said, you know, it's really hard. I was making a million and two million a year, but I was sitting next to guys who were making 10, and I was feeling like chump change, wanting more. He then went to work for a hedge fund, and his obsession with money only grew worse. He writes 
this way in New York Times, now working elbow to elbow with billionaires. I was, listen, this is a great phrase. I was a giant fireball of greed. I'd think about how my colleagues could buy Micronesia if they wanted or become mayor of New York City. They didn't just have money, they had power. Power beyond getting a table at La Bernadine. Senators came to their offices. They were royalty. He goes on to describe how he gets ticked off over a $3.6 million bonus because it wasn't big enough. And that's where he personally came to believe he had a wealth addiction. One of the things that I came to realize was I had been using money, listen to this, as this thing that would quell all my fears. It was this, it was this convenient God. So I had this belief that maybe someday I would get enough money that I would no longer be scared. I would feel successful. And one of the things I learned on Wall Street was no matter how much money I made, the money was never going to do that. I was on a train that a lot of people stay on their whole lives, which is saying, one day I'll have enough. For me, one of the benefits of working with such wealthy people was that I just saw that it was never going to happen. Now, the danger of telling you about Sam Polk is you're going, come on, man. Are you kidding me? That guy got a, a bonus of 3.6 million? I'll work all my life and won't get anywhere near that. And we go, I don't, I don't have, I'm not that guy. That's what we do with our wealth and possessions. We're always going up to the Bill Gates, the Warren Buffetts, the Sam Polks. So all I need to do is get you a round-trip ticket to Monrovia, Liberia. Let Pastor Matthew pick you up. You spend a week with Pastor Matthew, Karen, their six children. You have that bowl of rice at 5 o'clock at night. That's all you get. You live with his people, and you come back. And you tell me, are you rich or are you not rich? Friends, we're rich. We're rich. And God wants us to heed the warning. And he wants us to seize the day. We have this huge opportunity to actually not just pass on our wealth, to our descendants who hopefully won't squander it, but to pass on our wealth in such a way that we're greeted in heaven by people whose lives were changed, friends, because we did this with the stuff and not this. And so Christ's followers wisely invest generously share all that God has given us to make an eternal difference in the lives of others. May that be true of this church, this pastor, of each one here. This is a hard word, a good word meant to free us from that which enslaves us, to put us on this wild adventure of living like God. Let's pray. We remember the grace of our Lord Jesus that though he was rich for our sakes became poor so that through his poverty 
we might become rich. Lord, forgive us. Forgive us. Change us. Change us. Make us shrewd, excited investors in your work. Help us to know who the Lazarus is at our gate. And Lord, give us an inkling of the friends that will one day welcome us. For your honor and glory, for their good we pray. In Christ's name, amen.